Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast, the show where I sit down with former Amazon executives to discuss Amazon's unique principles and processes and tease out how you can apply them to grow and manage your business. I'm Tyler Wallace, a seven-year former Amazonian, current brand consultant, and your host as we learn to think like Amazon. Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Kim Matheson to the show. Kim spent nearly 12 years at Amazon, where she held several retail roles across media, consumables, and the hardlines categories, rising to lead the multi-billion dollar tools business end-to-end as director and category leader. Since leaving Amazon, Kim has spent the past three and a half years at Microsoft and currently holds the role of Chief Customer Officer for Business Application Solutions, where she works with enterprise customers to solve their toughest business challenges across industries and around the globe. Welcome to the show, Kim. Thanks. Happy to be here. Well, we're very happy to have you. And I know that 12 years is a long time, and that was a very quick bio. So maybe to kick it off, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your career journey at Amazon? Sure. So I started at Amazon pretty young. I think I was like 25. Super excited to be in the workforce. And I was lucky enough to start my career at that time in the US books business. So it was kind of a like mothership of Amazon at the time and got to learn from a lot of people who were, you know, in the first few hundred employees at the company, which was just such a gift. And one of the cool things about working, I think, in any company in the like the original core product group is you kind of learn how things were originally meant to be. And that's one of the things I was always really grateful for my time in that business. I feel like I was able to transition to other categories over time and really understand like, oh, I understand because I've worked in books, I know how this is supposed to work. And I see why it's not working for, you know, this product, maybe it's a t-shirt or a, you know, a piece of grocery. So that was really cool. I loved that time. And then I transitioned from there after about a year and a half, I moved to Germany and spent two years working in our Amazon.de business, um, running our English language books portion of that uh, German books business. And then I came back to the US and did a whole bunch of things. I worked in uh, grocery for a few years, leading the buying teams. I then moved to the sports category where I led marketing and third-party marketplace. I went to outdoor sports and uh, went back into leading buying teams. And then my last role before I left the company was category leader for the tools business where I loved all things, hand and power tools, garage storage, personal protection, PPE that everyone knows now because of COVID, uh, all of that kind of stuff. So it was great. It was really fun to work across, you know, all the different functional areas between in-stock and third-party and vendor management, but also across a number of different industries. And then, of course, the international bit in there as well. That's very cool. You had a very eclectic career at Amazon, not just touching many of those different retail roles or functions, as we call them, but also really just spending time in many different consumer product categories and businesses. We probably both know people that have spent entire careers in media or in tools and hard lines or yeah. in grocery. And so to have jumped from one to another, that exposed you to a lot. Maybe to kick off, can you tell us a little bit about how you used a customer focus to quickly get up to speed when you came to, let's say, moving from books to grocery or moving from grocery to tools or sports where, you know, is a new industry for you? 
Yeah, I think this is one of the most fun things about the role. And because Amazon in particular is so customer focused, it makes it so fun to be able to really dig into a business through the lens of a customer. I would say, um, like many things at Amazon, I typically started with the data. So the great thing about being at Amazon is there's so much customer data available, not like about you as a customer, but at the macro level, how customers are behaving. So I would look at things like, you know, what are customers buying in this category? How frequently are they buying it? Where are those customers coming from? Are they coming to my category or to this product directly from amazon.com? Are they coming from search? How are they even getting here? Then I would look at things like what are the best selling items in each of my categories or subcategories? So, you know, if you're talking about going from books to groceries, I knew the U.S. trade books business very well by the time I had worked there three and a half years. And then I suddenly found myself in a role where I was responsible for driving a business in snacks, cookies and candies. And I was like, okay, well, I better figure this out. So one of my favorite things to do every week would be looking at the item level detail of what customers were actually purchasing. What are my top ASINs, of course, is the Amazon standard identification number or SKU as most rest of the world calls it. What do people say about those products? I would read the customer reviews, you know, eventually the Q&A, which didn't exist until later in time. Um, you know, what products are highest rated? Which ones are most subscribed to in grocery? We have subscribe and save. What does that tell you about the strengths or gaps that you have in your business? Um, so all of that was really generated out of customer information, customer data, what customers were doing on Amazon, how they were finding us, how they were finding their products. I think the other thing that I always thought was really fun was I did this a lot in the outdoors group, especially I would look at what our best sellers were. And then I would also take a moment every week to go look at what the best sellers were on competitive websites not to necessarily do like a, am I, you know, it's not about, am I beating somebody, but it was about how do I identify where there's gaps and opportunities? So for example, um, in outdoors, it wouldn't be infrequent that we wouldn't be selling the same things as a majority of our competitors. It'd be like springtime and everyone else would be selling bikes and we're selling like totally different stuff. And, you know, we said, Hey, you know what, obviously this is the time when everybody else is selling this category that we're pretty weekend at the moment. What are we going to do about that? We don't want to just walk away from that revenue. And so we built programs around helping customers buy things that required assembly, which can be difficult online. So we partnered with mobile bike delivery and assembly people. We partnered with uh, manufacturers to create bikes that were more fully assembled than normal in a different kind of packaging so that the customer maybe only had to put on the handlebars and pedals. So we used that customer data to kind of see where do we have opportunities that we can go after? Where do we have gaps in our business model that we need to close? We did the same thing, actually, speaking of PPE, we did the same thing in tools. Um, we actually had a very strong PPE business. And you don't see PPE as top sellers at a majority of the home goods sellers that you would typically see. And so we said, hey, this is a place where we're winning. It's a really profitable category. Let's double down on it. And so we tried to double our PPE business the years that I was there, which we did, as a way to generate more than our, you know, quote unquote, fair share of wallet in that space um, for what you would expect from a tool retailer. So always focused on the customer. The data would tell us where to go and in what direction we should at least look. And then we would, you know, iterate and test things and see what happened as well. But those are the, the ways that I would try and use customer data to quickly get up to speed on what was happening when I switched between categories. So at least that's a start. 
That's great. And it's a playbook that can be consistently applied. You're always going to have a customer, whatever business you're in. And so starting with that customer is a step that you can consistently take. While we're talking about customers here, Kim, I want to just briefly reference for those less familiar with customer obsession, because it's one of the core. In fact, I think it's the first in the list of Amazon leadership principles. So the customer obsession principle states, leaders start with a customer and work backwards. They work vigorously to earn and keep customer trust. Although leaders pay attention to competitors, they obsess over customers. And I think that's so great. You, you just exemplified through your own experience and process how you started with customers. You didn't go in, okay, I need to understand all my competitors and then I'll talk to customers. But I also want to go back to something that you shared, Kim. You mentioned that you started with data. You, you shared, be it looking at selection or selection gaps based on the season, looking at top selling products and customer reviews. You mentioned several different data points in there and that you would make time to look at those. And then you also shared that from those insights, you piloted or launched whole programs to improve the customer experience. So clearly you went deep enough to really understand where those gaps were and understand where customers wanted to be delighted. Can you tell us a little bit more how you systematized or structured that customer research in your role? It's pretty apparent that it wasn't just that, oh, I'll do it when I get the time for it kind of an exercise. Yeah, well, I think I had my own processes. And then, of course, Amazon has its processes that I think do a pretty good job of forcing these behaviors. So, for example, Amazon has in the retail organization, there's the weekly business review. So every Wednesday, everybody in the organization at the leadership level gets together and talks about what went well, what didn't go well in the prior week. Is the business on track? Was it on plan? Was it off plan? And as category leaders and divisional merch managers or the folks that are managing buying teams, we're really responsible for looking at that data at the item level. And that is part of the rigor that Amazon drives, just I would say across all businesses. Of course, then that extrapolates to the monthly and the quarterly. So those mechanisms were in place at the corporate level. I would say in addition to that, though, there are other things that we did that I just thought were fun that led to a lot of some of the out of the box thinking on how we could improve our customer experience over time. So for example, there is a mechanism at Amazon that I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of called the press release or the PR FAQ, which is Amazon's document structure that says you start with the end in mind and then meaning the press release. So you really, you write this one page document that succinctly identifies what exactly are you trying to do? If you had to, you know, if this was going to be released in the New York times at some point, what would you want people to say about it? And what would you want your program service, et cetera, to do? So Every year, as part of our operational planning cycle, the leadership would be responsible for coming up with a few ideas. And I always liked to engage my team in this because I felt like oftentimes it's the people who are like really in the nitty gritty day to day who know the best what the customer pain points actually are or the vendor pain points or the seller pain points for that matter. And so we would do this little thing where every three months we would have a, like a scheduled meeting. And I would ask everybody on the team to submit three or four sentences for their best idea of what we could do as a business to either drive growth, you know, lower our cost structure, both of which generate customer improvement, or any other sort of customer experience improvement that might be a little bit more difficult to measure. Like, what if we just improved this particular site or made this content better or whatever? And everybody would submit their little three or four sentence blurbs. And then we would get together and with like a various, very rudimentary system, like literally sticky notes on the whiteboard, 
we would literally just go around and everyone would get, you know, two or three votes and we would vote on like, which of these sounds like the best idea. And we'd pick the top three, break into small groups. And again, we're doing this in like an hour. So it's not a massive time commitment, but it's enough to get a lot of ideas generated. And then we'd break into three groups. We'd spend maybe 20 minutes a group in our small groups trying to kind of flesh out the idea that was three or four sentences and really think through, okay, if we had to write a press release for this in 20 minutes, what would it look like? What do we think the output that we want is? What are the customer experience improvements? What is this going to do for our business? And we would just write them up quickly. And then we would vote again on which of those three would be the best. And that would be the one that I would take forward to our leadership. And then everyone felt like they got to be included. People understood why this one, why this idea versus that idea. And it helped them generate even better ideas because they would understand why certain things had been selected based on the type of opportunity or the type of customer improvement. So it was pretty cool. I always thought it was really fun to see what people would come up with too. And loved that by the time I would take it to our leadership, it actually really had everybody on the team's fingerprints on it. So even if it didn't get chosen, everybody felt like they had the opportunity to contribute. I think that's great. And a couple of points I really liked there, Kim. One is that you involved your team. So it wasn't this idea that as the leader, in many cases, probably the most tenured or experienced person on the team, you had the best ideas. It was really pulling across diverse perspectives and diverse talents and vantage points from your team. And then I also like that you mentioned that this ideation post-it notes on a whiteboard exercise didn't take very long. You spent, I think you said an hour on this initial approach. But I think that many companies could go about a similar ideation approach using different angles. You could say, hey, we're going to put together a revenue pro forma and each person come up with a revenue forecast for their idea. And you'd probably get a very different set of ideas than the approach of let's go at this writing a press release or writing key points to a press release and ideating from that lens. And I think that that really helped anchor things on, okay, what is the experience that this idea would deliver? And, And that's really cool. So it again, plays into the customer recession principle. Yeah, it's interesting. I've done it a couple different ways. You know, the other way to do that or to think another option, not the only other option, but another option that I see people do a lot is they'll have like a day long workshop. But I find in those sometimes that when you get the whole group thinking at once, you kind of end up on like one idea. And then you kind of end up spending the whole rest of the workshop on that one idea versus like when you have to look at, you know, 25 or 30 with my team size at the time, different ideas you really start to think through all of the different possibilities that are there. And sometimes you even leave feeling like none of these are big enough. None of these are good enough for our customers. This isn't enough to move the needle. We have to think bigger, but being able to see the breadth of it and actually having people submit something in advance. So you have something to start with is I think easier, especially if you're in a big group, than trying to get the whole group to get the same input from everybody. So this was the thing that worked the best for me after lots of different iterations. And, you know, I would tell people, hey, I'm trying this thing out and people would give me better tips like, hey, use sticky notes to vote. It's faster or, you know, dumb things that just make it easier, that were simple and, um, you know, low tech, but effective that, you know, at the end of the day, you don't have to spend a ton of money to come up with these ideas. It's just about like, what is what do customers really value? They value things that drive convenience, save them money get them the selection that they want when they want it. (laughs) And anything that you guys can come up with around this idea is going to be considered. So I think it's also really empowering to think that, and at Amazon, you actually have the authority and the support to just go do it. So that's another cultural benefit of working at Amazon. I think that can't be overlooked because a lot of people come up with great ideas at all sorts of other companies. Amazon's I think superpower 
is the ability to have a strategy like that, but also back it up with the plan and execution. Certainly. Yeah. And I agree with you that each of these leadership principles that form part of Amazon's culture interplay a lot on each other. You know, you you really can't execute on that customer obsession if you don't have bias for action, if you don't have ownership, and if you can't take that idea to the finish line. If it if it dies in step two, then then you haven't really delivered anything for your customer. Right. I want to go back, Kim, to something you mentioned in this process that you would not only think about the consumer, but you'd also think about vendors and sellers. And Amazon often talks about its sellers as another set of customers in addition to the end consumer. I know that during several of your roles, you were also responsible for the seller business or the seller P&L for the categories that you led. So in those roles, can you tell us a little bit more about how you thought about earning and keeping trust with sellers as a customer? I will just like come out of the gate with seller trust is critical to Amazon's business, like full stop. I think people um, underestimate how important and how meaningful that is to Amazon employees frequently. And I never had a day where I didn't think about what would be the best for our sellers as well as for our customers and our vendors, to be honest. I spent a lot of time in vendor management and business development, and I love working with vendors. I think it's fun to work with people to figure out how everybody is going to win. And that's not always possible, but it was fun to try. And, you know, I think with sellers, there's a couple functional things at Amazon and you price all this too. There's like literally a wall between a physical wall between the people who work in third party and the people who work in first party. And the only place that data on first party and third party come together is at the category leader position. So as the leader of the business, you get to see both sides and the details of both sides, but not everybody does. Um, There's a high degree of trust and responsibility that's placed in the role of people who have access to seller data. So I think, you know, just knowing that uh, from people on the inside is perhaps helpful, but also, you know, helping sellers and realizing there's a bit of a different mentality. They are definitely a different customer group, but they also have different goals. So when you're talking about a customer, you know, it might be like, I want this package on my doorstep by 4 p.m. today. When you're talking about a seller, this is someone who's like trying to grow a business. So it's a different set of things that are going to motivate them. And so we would try and partner with sellers and drive trust by helping them understand where we foresaw the biggest opportunities in the business that we thought they could fulfill. So maybe I know that, I'm going to lose supply from a brand in three or four months, and I'm going to want to provide that supply to my customers so I could proactively outreach to a few of our bigger third-party sellers and ask them if they'd be able to procure the selection so we don't have a gap in uh, an ability to fulfill customer orders. Or you know, maybe there's selection that Amazon's just unable to carry. FC capacity is a big issue right now across the industry, right? So probably tough to get a lot of kayaks in storage in an Amazon warehouse this year. I'm just guessing. I have no insider info, but I'm just guessing it was tough five years ago. So, you know, you might be partnering with your sellers and helping them try and grow their business by helping to identify areas where like, look, I just know there's going to be logistical challenges with this type of inventory. Would you be able to carry the weight for a majority of our Amazon customers with your supply? So, trying to find ways to drive their business and grow their business with them in partnership that felt like somebody was really paying attention, understood what they were trying to do, understood what their specialties were. Uh, In tools, I had a couple vendors that were just awesome at shipping multi-unit orders. So maybe an easy to understand example is even uh, like in the sports business, if you're shipping a treadmill that usually comes in multiple boxes at the time, Amazon wasn't great at that. We're really specialized in single unit shipments and across a 
obviously like millions of different items, which is kind of the thing that Amazon is so good at that makes them unique in general. But when it comes to like one specific widget, it comes in three boxes. And for the customer to actually get the full complete thing to get all three boxes, that was challenging. And so we would partner a lot with other third-party sellers who just were very good at that. And we knew that we would have fewer customer complaints, fewer returns, and that these guys could grow their business in an area where it just was going to be challenging for us. So anyways, those are just a few examples of places where building trust with people by helping to understand their business and how to make them successful and then supporting them through the growth and making sure you had their back if something went wrong. And, you know, someone was complaining at you know Amazon exec levels that there was somebody to advocate for the seller on their behalf. Like, hey, guys, let's not turn the seller off because of this. Like we asked them to go do this. We need to partner through this process with them. Let's work on some different alternatives. So I think it's give and take. But um, those are the areas that I found to be most successful. And then a lot of the other seller day to day movement, I'll say, through Seller Central and all of that. Honestly, just helping people through some of that stuff. If you've ever had your like request lost in oblivion, which I think probably everybody has <laughs> at some point, like when you're internal and you can resolve that quickly, I think, you know, that goes a long way to showing people that you really are trying to help them and care. That's great. I really like the word partner that you used several times, Kim, to describe this dynamic in terms of how you would work with sellers and try to help their business. I think what's key there is that it's not that at Amazon internally, you were putting on your end consumer hat and focusing on delivering improvement for them. And then you would take off that hat and separately put on the seller hat and then focus on the seller business. You were looking at opportunities to benefit all customers and in pulling the sellers into benefit from some of those ideas or programs. I, I love the example of, of kayaks or of knowing that you're out of stock in a certain brand and pulling sellers in to say, hey, there's this opportunity. Let me help you grow your business by helping deliver for our joint end customer. So that partner description, I think, is really key there. So we're talking a lot about customer obsession here. And I think, you know, to be fair, most companies care about their customers. And so I think that there's something maybe a little bit different or maybe a little bit on steroids that Amazon has about its customer focus versus some other companies. Can you give us an example or or is there an example that comes to mind of a time at Amazon that for you really illustrated the length that Amazon would go to to earn or to keep customer trust? You know, I can't think of one specific example that was like an aha moment for me because I feel like it was just that way every day. And, you know, maybe the best way to describe it is like how often we would do things that would probably seem just insignificant to other companies that just were so common sense to us. Like it could be anything like this customer has called and and said this thing, this item was dysfunctional three times. It's like, okay, well, maybe it is. Let's just trust them. And that was, I think, one of the unique things at Amazon is like we never asked our customer service associates, our buyers, our in-stock managers to second guess customers. It was like there was no, no one ever asked me, do you think they're telling the truth? It was like, just send them a new one. Just make it happen. And then we would work on figuring out how to improve the shipping process or whatever else was broken that was leading to that bad customer experience on our side, on the Amazon side, with the vendors or with our logistics partners. But there was never, ever a time when anyone asked me to question a customer. It's like, just trust them, start by trusting them, and then figure out if there's a trend. And, 
oftentimes like it was a problem with something that we had done. It was, you know, something was broken at the warehouse. And I remember there was a, an anecdote that I'd heard in one of our customer service training. So at a certain level at Amazon every year, you probably remember this Tyler, that you have to go to the call center for a day and take customer calls with our CS agents. Of course, they don't let us talk to customers because that's probably <laughs> too risky, but we <laughs> sit through them and listen to them and ask questions. And um, I remember there was this, this story that they told us about how the this customer had called and it was about like a, I don't know, it was like a wooden desk or something. And it was actually Jeff Bezos was in the training with CS and the customer call agent that was sitting with him said to him before they even picked up with the phone with the customer, like, oh, this thing is going to have a scratch across the top. And Jeff asked the guy, well, how do you know that? And he said, oh, because I get like a call a week about this particular item. And it's always because it has a scratch across the top and we're going to dispatch them a new one. And it's likely that the next one might also have a scratch. And so sure enough, they picked up the phone with the customer. That was what the issue was. They resolved it. She was happy. Of course, she didn't know Jeff was on the phone. Um, and that was, you know, the impetus for the Andon cord, which um, is a process by which any customer service agent at Amazon could just hit a button that would take an item down for sale across the website everywhere. So you didn't get asked as a buyer. You didn't get asked as a supply chain manager. You could have a million units of something in stock and customer service could take it off the site for sale because they felt at their discretion that that item had too many customer contacts or too many customer damages and they didn't want to keep that going. So I think that is one of the most exemplary examples of um, customer obsession at Amazon. And those are the kinds of things where it's like, you just don't question the customer, right? Like other companies would say, there's no way this desk came to that guy three times scratched. And we were just like, it must have been scratched three times. Let's go fix it. And then, you know, someone's responsible for calling the vendor and figuring out what well, turned out in this case that like there was something about the packaging where when it went through the mail, there was like a staple or something that scratched the top of the desk and people didn't like it. So anyways, I think that's one example where I think it was really just exemplary. I don't have a better word of how, how much Amazon cared about customers and processes that they would put in place then to make sure that things like that didn't keep happening for customers. Those are the kinds of things that I am always and was always proud to say I was an Amazonian over. I really like that you brought up the Anoncore process, Kim. First of all, it, it says a lot that after 12 years at Amazon, you feel like you never had an example where a leader said, you know, this one time, let's assume the customers are wrong in that we are right on this one. So that didn't happen. But I think that if you don't have the mechanisms to back that up, then that really puts a lot of dependency on the leaders across what is now a huge organization to all uphold that same mentality. And so I think the Anacord example is a great example of how Amazon has actually put a mechanism and structure in place so that, you know, if there's any doubt, if there's any new team in some new geography of the world that's like, hey, do we empower any employee at Amazon to bias on the side of the customer's it's like, well, we have this mechanism called the Anon Cord that we look at every week in our business reviews. I think we should, you know, and, and so I think that that's a great example. Yeah, I remember there was also another process in the in that weekly business review, the WBR that we referenced a little bit ago, where every week across the whole company in this review, there were five items across the company that they would highlight that were the most contacted, like customer service received the most calls about these particular five items. And it was always a random set of stuff across the company. And 
the years that I worked in grocery, I spoke in that meeting every single week in front of every category leader and all of our executives. And it was always something like sugar-free Haribo gummy bears. And there was always a customer complaining that somebody got sick. And so there was a question about, was it, was the product something wrong with the product? It literally took me having a scientist write a letter that like eating too many sugar-free gummy bears is not good for your belly. And if anyone eats a five pound bag, they can expect to experience these symptoms (laughs) to get off the hook for talking about these things, because that is how much the company was biasing to like, I know you told us that last week, Kim, but they're on the list again. So are you sure that they're safe? Are you sure? I'm like, yes, eating five pounds of gummy bears is just not good for you. It's going to make you not feel good. There's nothing wrong with the actual gummy bear, but like every week for a year. That's so funny. Unfortunate, but it's also interesting to just think about the scale of Amazon and realize that Amazon sells so many sugar-free Haribo gummy bears that each week somebody in the world is eating over five pounds in one sitting. That is true. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, Kim, I want to fast forward a little bit uh, since since we just have a few minutes left. You've now since left Amazon and you've spent the last three plus years at Microsoft. Are there components of the customer obsession principle that you feel you've taken with you or built upon in your recent roles? Yeah, absolutely. And I think honestly, that's one of the reasons why Microsoft was interested in me as a candidate. I think there's, you know, there's just a general sense that folks from Amazon have a really strong customer obsession. And under Satya, our company is really shifting. And we are, you know, becoming a more customer focused, aspire to be the most customer focused as well. You know, I think the couple of big differences for me have been Microsoft is focused primarily on an enterprise customer which means a, you know, a large business customer versus Amazon, at least in the division that I was in, was very focused on end consumers like you and me who order things to our home. Um, I also now work in software. So I, have a, I work on SaaS products, not physical shipping of products. But um, the main you know, tenets or theories behind customer obsession remain the same. So in my case now, it's maybe a little bit more similar to thinking about it as with the seller part of the conversation we were having, right? So it's like my customer is now another business entity, but those people have customers. We have joint end consumers of the product. And so I love doing a lot of, we do a lot of work with those folks as well. And um, in the product lines I work in, that tends to be a lot of like first line or frontline workers. So, you know, we'll actually go sit with folks who are using the product in their day job Because you can sit with an IT manager, but you don't necessarily know how well your product is working for the business based on how well it was actually implemented as a software product, if that makes sense. right. So you can like deploy a laptop to somebody, but you don't know if they're able to use it effectively to get their job done. And so we spend a lot of time with end users to make sure that that's true and that our software products are working as they were expected to, and then driving uh, feedback from users back into our product. So pretty similar in the sense that like, we're still very customer focused. Um, I do use a lot of the tools. I, much to my employees chagrin, do still make them write PRFAQs and documents to make sure that we're clear on exactly what it is that we're building and how we want to do it and what the customer benefits are so that we don't lose sight of what the outcome that we're trying to drive is specifically towards the customer experience improvement or, you know, implementation, customer success, that type of thing. Very cool to hear that you're still using PR FAQs. 
I don't know if my people would say that, you know, writing is a very different skill than PowerPoint creation. And so I have, um, I'm improvement needed in PowerPoint creation. And I'm willing to admit that, uh, you know, I spent too many, too many years writing documents and never opening a PowerPoint. And now, of course, the irony that I work at Microsoft and it's a business run on PowerPoint. So we, it's a little give and take. I write a lot of documents and they help me turn it into presentations and vice versa. Well, hey, Microsoft also makes Microsoft Word, right? Which we used every day at Amazon. I joke with them. I'm like a super user. Yeah. And then I also like, you didn't say this explicitly, but before we were talking about how you managed to successfully grow your career across these industry jumps at Amazon, going from books to grocery to sports to tools, you did that by starting with a customer and working backwards. And what you just shared is that you've effectively now done that moving to enterprise business to business customers, which is also a big jump at Microsoft from what you did with end consumers at Amazon. And you did the same thing. You started with the customers, you're talking to your, your enterprise customers and you're using PRFAQs. You're, you're using a lot of the same approach to help you get up to speed and make an impact by starting at the customer and working backwards. Yeah. Thank you. You said that better than I did. (laughs) As we wrap up here, Kim, what advice would you give to either entrepreneurs or managers aspiring to build more customer-centric businesses? You know, I think, not to be cliche, but I would start with the customer and work backwards. If for your organization, that means you need to put that empty chair at the table to remind people to do that and to start there, then do it. It's not weird. It's not geeky. If it helps, use every tool available to you to try and drive a cultural transformation with the customer at the center of your business. I have seen, just based on my experience since I left Amazon, how challenging that can be, especially for existing businesses who may have organizational structures in place that make it difficult to do this. And it's, it truly can happen that you know you have an organization that is it's structurally difficult to do what's right for the customer because decisions are uh, made in a you know disaggregated way across the company. Maybe one division isn't talking to another division and you don't really even see, there isn't a place to see where that's causing customer friction. So really take a hard look if you think you have those kinds of organizational structures set up. And then I think as leaders, we have to be willing to be in that uncomfortable position where we have to go unblock those organizational structures and the barriers that are preventing people from being focused on customers or really take a hard look at how we're measuring our people. Are we inadvertently goaling people in ways that are actually detrimental to our customers? I've seen that as well, obviously unintentional, but sometimes these unintended outcomes actually make things more difficult for our customers. Maybe we said drive a lot of revenue But that meant making short-term decisions about how we treat our customers. And I'm not saying that's a Microsoft example, but I've seen this in other places. And so really challenge yourself, I'd say, to eliminate roadblocks. Instead of starting with, we could never do X, Y, or Z because we're just not set up that way. Maybe start by thinking like, what if we assumed that everything was possible? What would we have to do in order to enable this customer improvement or this, you know, new program or whatever it might be? And really challenge yourself on whether the assumptions you're making about the impossibility of something are true or couldn't be changed. I think most of the time they can be. It's just about our tolerance for and our ability to get them done structurally and how much appetite we have to do that. If you're just starting out, it's a lot easier because you can build a more customer-centric native culture. But it's I, I appreciate that it can be really difficult in organizations that were maybe set up more competitor-focused. It's a big cultural transformation. And so 
it'll be bit by bit, but uh, I think it's worth it in the end. And it's for long-term thinkers like Amazon folks, it's never too late to start because being customer centric is, isn't going to hurt your business. I'll say that. So many good insights. I, I just love the attitude that you bring to business. And I think anybody that works with you or works under you is going to be adopting that customer first mentality and probably going to feed off of this positive vibe that you have. And so very fun to, to have this conversation. We'd love to have you back on the show sometime. Sure As we wrap up, where can listeners go to learn more about you or follow your work? Well, um, I am on LinkedIn, of course. And then, you know, around our business, dynamics.com is the home of all things business applications at Microsoft, where the work that my team and I do obviously funnels through eventually and shows up as, as new products there. So that's where you can get the latest and greatest on what's going on at Microsoft. And otherwise, you can find me on LinkedIn. Thanks again, Kim. It's been great having you. Thanks so much, Tyler. Talk to you soon.